Okay, woodchuck chuckers, we got a lot of ground to cover today, so we're going to have to, uh, to jump right into this. Um, first thing we want to do, I want to introduce uh, Sandy Anderson. Sandy has been instrumental in leading our Teen Reach Adventure Camp for, well, she's about to tell you for how long, and, and uh, this is one of our two foster camps. We also have Royal Family Kids Camp that we run in the summer. Awesome ministries. I know you want to know about them, so we always take a Sunday or two during the year to, to bring attention to that. So, Sandy, what's special about this year? Let's hear about it. Well, it's special for a few reasons. Um, number one, this we have completed a milestone year. Last year we did our 10th camp, and uh, I'm so thankful to have Chantel Longineau being a co-director with me. But this year we also have Nathan Fisher, who's coming on to um, um, train as a director too, so that's a big thing for us. While we went to nationals this last year, they honored our church for having this for 10 years, and so they gave us this lovely vase just as a token of their appreciation for us uh, supporting them all those years. And I would like to say thank you to all of y'all for supporting us, not just um, financially, which many, many of you have done, um, especially at our fundraiser not too long ago, and then um, also through praying. So many of you have been prayer warriors for us for up to six weeks prior to camp, and what we do at camp is we provide summer camp free of charge to foster families. And a Royal Family Kids Camp is kids 7 to 11, and track is um, kids 12 to 15. And they get to come to camp, and um, they get to fish, and they get to um, tube on the lake, and they get to um, do archery and BB guns and crafts and so many things that they just never have done before. So it's a, an awesome ministry that blesses not only the campers but also us. Um, like I said, many of y'all have given and supported us, so and we appreciate it. Um, if you have not and you want to participate in that, there's a couple of ways this year. We do have a new project. The ladies downtown have always prepared fleece blankets for our campers, and they're getting older and only able to do the girls' camp this year. So we are looking for people to help us with uh, the fleece blankets for the boys' camp. So if you're interested in helping with that, afterwards in the back behind the, in the foyer, we'll have some information where you can pick that up. And um, then if you're interested in camp, you can just um, talk to us about that, too, and we can go from there. Mm -hmm. And there's and some of the seats you saw. There's If you want to get information that way or give, you can do that uh, as well with those information sheets that are there. So that pretty much covers, I mean, there's a lot of workers who work every year in this ministry opportunity. Um, if you don't already have something that you're connected to and involved in and would like to be a part of, um, there's a lot who already are, but there's always space. You, most years, a few more people are needed. And so uh, make sure and talk to Sandy or someone in the Dayglow shirts or mm -hmm. out there as well. So um, very good. Excellent. If you want to pray for this time, thank you. Sure okay, let's have Sandy pray. Mm -hmm. Father, we just thank you and praise you so much for your faithfulness to help us carry out this ministry every year. Every year, you just miraculously provided for us financially, and you've also provided um, just a hedge of protection around about us. And we thank you for those people that have been faithful to pray, not only for our volunteers, but for our campers and every aspect of the camp. And uh, we just trust, Lord, that you're preparing right now those teens and those young people to come to Royal Family and track, um, that they might just have a meaningful time where they will come to know Jesus Christ. And we just thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sandy. Um, okay, so, because <clears throat> we, we think it's important for everybody to have ministries um, that you're a part of, that you're living out. We don't, 
We don't want to become what Francis Chan calls the thousand-pound Christians who are just sitting there in the church going, feed me, feed me. And we need to be burning some of those spiritual calories as well and, and investing and engaging. And so um, this is one of the many different groups and, and, and uh, ministries we partner with. Um, and it's a really powerful one, and, and it, it will change your life to engage with these kids and interact with them. Um, <coughs> all right. I'm hoping that the... Um, uh, in a couple of weeks when I preach again, the cough will be totally gone. We'll see. Um, it's not too bad today, but I apologize for it. And um, uh, next week, we're going to have one of our devoted Sundays where we focus special attention on, on baptism and communion and family dedication. So uh, come prepared for that. And it's, there's kind of a special treat for that next week. So um, look forward to, to getting to experience that. Um, as we talk about these tough things, the fact that the struggle is real for us, that we really do face challenges... And so often we feel like we're either supposed to live in denial of that or like the world denies that and they think we deny that, which we don't um, at all. Um, <coughs> part of the challenge in this I realized a few years ago was that, that I am truly um, disappointed in a God who doesn't do what I want him to do. Um, I'm disenchanted with a God who does not answer prayers the way I want him to answer prayers. And and sometimes I even feel disenfranchised with a God who allows the kind of struggles and challenges and, and evils and pains and sufferings in the world that happen in the world. I, I wrestle with that. I also realize that I would disbelieve in a God who was just a dog on a leash for me. That if he did whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted him to do, then I would be God and he would, not, he would just be my servant. And so it creates this really challenge. There's no doubt it creates an honest to goodness challenge for us to go, Okay, this is, he gets to be God, but, but he doesn't do the whole God thing the way I would want him to do it, and that's sometimes frustrating for me. And so when we, when we wrestle with that, that's a real thing. Today, as we jump into these topics, and we're going to get through maybe a couple of them, um, and then we'll attack uh, the, the last one or the, one of these um, in a couple of weeks. The first one I want to jump into, I promised, which was the heading of Forgiveness. Um, forgiveness is one of those things that is definitely part of Christian teaching, but I think is so often handled um, so badly um, and, and not handled well that it creates problems for us um, within the church. Here's what I mean. I believe forgiveness is a cosmic thing. I think forgiveness is a universal thing. I think, I think forgiveness is a massive, um, a, a, a creation-wide concept. The creation-wide concept comes from this. Debts must be paid. That this is the way the universe works, is that debts are paid. The writer of Hebrews, um, when he or she got into this conversation and was talking about the challenges of the sacrificial system, here's how the writer of Hebrews summarized this. <laughs> Hebrews 9.21, In the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I think this is a cosmic truth. It is a universal truth. Someone always pays. There is no such thing as an unpaid debt. All debts eventually, in some form, are paid. And so if that's the case, then you can understand why Jesus comes at the conversation of forgiveness the way he does. He doesn't come at the conversation of forgiveness as though it's a choice. 
as though it's something that we could, we could do or not do. He comes at it as a requirement. <coughs> now, this is odd because forgiveness is hard. Again, someone always pays. Every debt that goes, every debt that exists is eventually balanced out. The sum is eventually, finally, zeroed out. Well, this is hard because if I owe you $1,000 and you forgive that debt, who paid it? You did. You're the one who went without the $1,000. When you forgive, you bleed. And there's no way around that. That's a hard thing for God to ask us to do. To say, I'm asking you to pay. I'm telling you to bleed. I'm telling you to be the one who faces the consequences. That would be an impossible thing to ask, a weird thing, feeling unjust thing for him to ask. So he explains his, his defense of this is really only one thing. It's, he doesn't go into the psychological benefits, although there can be those. Sometimes those get overplayed because um, sometimes there aren't. But, but he, he goes, he, here's, here's Jesus' teaching on the concept of forgiveness. Because the disciples, he talks about it a lot. <laughs> the conversation of forgiveness, this is an honor-shame first century culture that he lives in. And forgiveness is a big deal. And yet, he never treats it as flippant. Get, get this in your head. Like, this, this weird churchianity version of forgiveness does not honor God. And it doesn't honor Scripture. That you go, hey, I was, I was abandoned as a kid. I was neglected. I was abused. I faced this or that. I was teased as a fourth grader. And I shouldn't have had to go to school every day in terror. Someone owes me for that. I had a a divorced parents and my dad always promised to to show up at this time and he never did. Someone owes me for that. I had a a, a parent who was involved in in this this addiction or that addiction and they neglected me or they weren't very good parents. See, all of these create debts. You can have something stolen from you that creates a debt. You can have something promised to you that's not delivered. That creates a debt. Goodness, even even just this is the way things ought to be and this is the way things are, that gap creates a debt. If you go, this is what a dad is supposed to be and this is what my dad was like, that gap, that's a debt. Someone owes you. But if you go into a Christian small group, it doesn't matter how awful the story you tell is. I faced this type of horrible abuse at the hands of this person who I should have been able to trust. In 15 seconds, someone is going to go, you know, you need to forgive that person. (laughs) And you want to go like, oh, well, all right then, right? Well, if it's that, then, you know, what? Is that what God did? I mean, when we see the debts that we incurred against God as our race and as us as individuals, that, that we brought fallen sin to his world, and then each of us adds our own. Did God go like, I ah, forget about it? No, because the cosmic law is that someone always pays. Someone pays. Here's the parable of Jesus. When Jesus explains forgiveness, notice the terms he uses. This is from Matthew 18, <coughs> the same passage, the same similar passage, a connected passage to what we talked about with confrontation within Christianity. You can see why they go hand in hand. Before I read this, you need to know something. A talent, a talent is 20 years wages. Okay, so if you worked worked and saved everything you made for 20 years, 
That would be a talent. Another, you would also call that a fortune. Okay? So 20 years salary. If you said, hey, uh, I'm going to play the lottery, and I won 20 years salary in one check at one time, that would be a talent. Make sense? Good. A denarii is one day's wage. A denarii is how much you're paid to work for one day. So you got that talent, 20 years, denarii, one day. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, may be <coughs> compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Twenty years' wages times ten thousand. How long is it going to take him to pay this off? Forever, right? This is that medical bill that you're paying hundred dollars a month to the to the hospital. Forever, right? I just just count on that hundred bucks forever, right? His children can pay it. His grandchildren can pay it. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. <coughs> so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. That is either delusional or a lie, but it's what he says. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debts. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So a talent times 10,000 versus 100 days' wages. Now, is that insignificant? Is 100 days' wages insignificant? No, that's real money. But it's meant Jesus uses these numbers to teach a couple of lessons. One is, relative to the debt, the original debt, it's tiny. In and of itself, it's still meaningful. Jesus didn't go one denarii. He did not dismiss or or minimize the debt that the servant is owed. He's owed real money. It's nothing compared to what he just got forgiven, but it's still real money. When the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So the fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience on me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and went and reported to the master what had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and you would not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. In anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Ouch. This is a tough teaching. If Jesus wasn't teaching this before the crucifixion and resurrection, it would probably be even more terrifying than it is. But as it is, none to play with. But notice his point that he's making here. He, he says, you're forgiven this debt, so you should be able to forgive this debt. It's just a matter of straight finances. I paid $10,000 a month to my master. This guy over here pays me $10 a month. Well, if my master forgives me my $10,000 a month, I can afford to forgive him his $10 a month and still come out $9,990 ahead. 
See, that's the concept of the relative debt. It isn't that this debt doesn't matter. It's that I can afford to forgive it because of what I've been forgiven. That's the picture Jesus creates here. And listen, the debt that we owed, no matter whether you were a, a, a gang leader drug lord or just a rebellious normal human being like the rest of us, the debt incurred against an almighty holy God is astounding. It's unpayable. That's the point. It's not something we could pay if we spent our whole life trying to pay it off. Aside from the fact that all we would end up doing is owing him more by the end. So you, you add that in. This is, this is the picture that he creates. This word Greek, the Greek word here for forgive can mean to leave, to let go, to release. To release what? To be released from what? All right, so <clears throat> do this with me. Ready? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Some of you only had one ever because that was Catholic. My, uh, my ever and ever is Episcopalian. Um, but what I remember as a kid going to Episcopal school as we would pray that prayer multiple times a day um, is it seemed like a really good bargain to me. I was to forgive people their trespasses and they were forgiving and, and I was going to be forgiven of my trespasses. So this was great because I lived out in the woods in East Texas and man, I walked on everyone's property. You had a fence, you had a gate, and that was just like a come here sign to me, right? A big no trespassing or you will be shot. That sounded like an adventure to me. Like, let's go, right? And the only property I owned by any standard was my room, and no one ever wanted to go in my room. So this was an awesome trade for me. I trespass. That's okay. You can trespass on my stuff. We'll be okay. See? Easy. It's because, obviously, I didn't know as a kid. And by the way, I loved that line. I consider that one of the greatest, most poetic lines ever. The King James Version of that, of that prayer with the word trespass in it. Um, um, and to those who trespass against us. Like the alliteration there is so cool. As long as a room full of snakes, it's so cool. As a kid, I loved it. So, now, some of you were, you, you don't know the Lord's Prayer because you were like raised Baptist or something, but the, the or you know it with a different word. What is often the word, that, what, in the modern translations, what's the word there for trespass? Debt. <laughs> that's the word that's there now in your Bibles is the word debt. So this helps because every time Jesus teaches about forgiveness, he typically connects the concept of debt to it, which should tell us what forgiveness really is about. It goes back to that original thing, all debts are paid. All books are balanced. In the end, everything will be zeroed out. That's how this works. So we have this incredible power to zero out someone's books in regards to us. Um, years ago, a, a young lady who was a client of mine, who was an 11-year-old, um, whose dad had run off with, uh, he was a minister, and he had run off with another minister of the church and, and abandoned the family. And at some point, this, this young lady was willing to write what I call a debt letter. So she wrote this letter of debt. Dear Dad, you owe me. And she wrote this beautiful, very precocious letter to her dad. You stole this from me, you stole this from me, you stole this from me. Stuff that I hadn't even considered. 
My mom was depressed for the two years after you left her. You stole my mom from me at a time when I really needed her. My brother went, got super angry and is now still angry, wears black all the time and listens to hateful music because you, you owe me my brother. You, you owe me my friends. We had to move. And it's just, it was this really horrific and beautiful letter as she read it. Now, she had done research. I didn't have to teach her this. She finished the letter this way. Dad, you should spend the rest of your life trying to make this up to me. But even if you tried, you never could. And let's be honest, you're not going to. So I forgive you. I absolve your debt. She used that word. I didn't teach you that word. I had to look it up. I absolve your debt to me. It means to blot out liquid paper. Take the ledger. You add everything up. There's a final number. She says, I now blot out that number. The only reason that she could afford to do that is because she understood what God had forgiven her. Now, she, as far as I know, she never sent that letter to her dad. None of his business. He doesn't get it. He's, this isn't about reconciliation. See, forgiveness isn't about necessarily reconciliation. It's not about making the relationship good. It's about making the relationship it's about setting yourself free of this. This is what I think forgiveness is. is it, a it is a covenant in which you say, I expect and require no payment on the debt you owe me. It does not make the debt go away. It does not mean the person did not sin. It doesn't mean it's not sin. That person still needs to deal with God. They still have their debts to deal with God. But you're saying, I'm out of this picture I'm out of this debt collection picture. I don't expect or require you to pay me anymore. I'm not going to try to collect on this. Now, again, it doesn't mean, it does not necessarily mean you now trust this person. It doesn't mean you have to change your boundaries with this person. They may still be a dangerous person. You can forgive. You have an abuser in your family. You can forgive them of the abuse they committed in your family, but you don't let them babysit your children if someone has taken $1,000 from you multiple times and are never paying you back, you can forgive them of that debt, but you don't, you're not required to loan them more money. That's a totally different heading and conversation. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Reconciliation is different. It takes two people to reconcile. It only takes one person to forgive. In fact, only one person can forgive. It has to be a one-directional covenant. Now, over the years, you've heard me talk about this, how are we at keeping covenants? Yeah, we stink at it. We're awful at it. I'm in this marriage covenant. There are days I do pretty well as a husband. I live out my husband covenant pretty well. I'm just going to pat myself on the back here. Every once in a while I do a pretty good day. I really do. There are other days that I don't check in, I don't call, I don't text. I go through my whole day as if it's just me. Right? I mean like, Oh yeah, married, right? That's whole, that's a covenant. There's some days I don't do a good job with that covenant at all. That doesn't change that the covenant exists. The covenant is there. We're just bad as humans at keeping covenants. So you forgive somebody and you commit to that and you make that covenant. I forgive this for, I expect and require no payment on this debt. I absolve that final number. There are going to be days when you want nothing more in the world than for that person to pay for what they've done. You're still going to feel that. When I got to the end of this teaching in the first service, um, I asked if there were any questions. 
And Anil Barron goes, raise your hand. And uh, she says, what if I don't feel it? Like, welcome to the human race, right? If you forgive somebody but you don't feel like forgiving them, that's called being human. You don't have to feel it. Feeling it, as John said earlier, it is neither expected, demanded, or required for us as Christians to feel things. You may, you may not. I love that years ago, Chris Rice, um, some of you know who he was, he, and he interacted with youth all the time, and he would tell youth, I've never felt the presence of God. Never once. Which has nothing to do with anything. I'm not required to. That's not promised to me in the Bible. You certainly know who Mother Teresa is. When she died and her journals were uncovered, it turned out for decades of the end of her life, she did not feel the presence of God anymore. She had spent so much time in the darkest, most depressing parts of the world that now she was saturated with this darkness and depression and no longer felt the presence of God, which changed nothing about how she ministered because we are neither promised nor required to feel things as Christians. We don't have to feel like forgiving somebody. We're just called to do it. And you'll notice, by the way, there's two parts to this. One is God is, that Jesus is saying, listen, I'm your rabbi and I forgive. If you're going to follow me, you'll forgive. If you really understand what it means to be forgiven, you are inspired to then go forgive other people. You can't wait to find a way to forgive other people. Yes, it can even offer us all kinds of psychological benefits and mental health benefits to forgive. I will tell you, there have been numerous times in counseling where what has been in the way of someone living a full life is their unwillingness to forgive. And they forgive, they write this letter, they come to this conclusion, they make this covenant, they forgive, and it's unreal how much changes for them. Sometimes that's a, the final pivot for some people. But not always. Sometimes you forgive somebody and they just keep incurring new debt. They're still as dysfunctional and unhealthy as they were in the first place. And then you just bleed a lot. In that case, we recognize that God has called us to forgive because he has the authority to do so. Listen, I have purchased you with a price. You have sworn fealty to me, and I'm telling you, you forgive. I don't want to. I get that. They haven't earned it. You're right, they haven't. So forgive because I have earned it. I've earned the right to tell you to forgive by how much I've forgiven you. That's the picture created. So I'll ask you as well, any questions on forgiveness that you want to ask, make sure I cover? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Great question. So the question asked is, when he says forgive your brother, who does he mean? I think this is the general term for anyone. Anyone you have a relationship with, you would forgive. I think that's what he means there. I don't think that's a target audience. I think if we're, care if we're not careful, if we ask, like, who does this count? Then we kind of turn to that guy who's like, okay, who's my neighbor? Meaning, who isn't my neighbor? Like, that's what he's really asking. Who do I not have to love? And, and I, I think in this, I don't think there's a, a population that he would say, well, you don't have to forgive those people. Um, remember, this is, I mean, Peter, when Peter gets this point, he's like, how many, how many times should I forgive somebody? Seven times? <laughs> Ching, right? He thinks he's being all holy. 
He thinks Jesus is going to go, I was going to say three, but seven. Wow, Peter, you're amazing. And Jesus goes like, yeah, I think 70 times seven. Like if you're in a relationship with a human being for long term, man, 490 doesn't even come close, right? I mean, Jesus probably had to forgive me 490 times in the first couple of years of marriage alone. That's a, it, is a, it is a covenant. You stand with this person. I covenant to forgive you. Now, again, it doesn't mean you don't draw healthy boundaries. It doesn't mean you don't, you don't say this is the way the guidelines have to be. It doesn't mean those aren't the same as saying, I don't expect you to pay off your debts to me. Good. Any others? Okay. Jumping into the next one. Speaking of feeling it. Mental and emotional issues that we wrestle with as Christians. This is one that often we don't talk about because Christians are supposed to have all this stuff together. We don't have mental and emotional problems um, because, after all, we're Christians, and so everything's flawless for us. Everything's perfect for us, Um, (coughs) which is, um, I mean, wrong. Uh, The truth of the matter is we see this all through Scripture. When you see real people, you're going to see this. It's amazing to me that anyone would teach that version of teaching. Apparently, they've never read the Bible. Think about Job's level of depression and discouragement. Elijah's. And you got to love Elijah's. Elijah's situation is he just had the greatest victory that any human has ever had over their enemies ever. And then he is suicidally depressed as a response to that. You been there? Much less Jonah, who knew God super well and was depressed. The disciples, who get so afraid and so depressed and so discouraged, they run for the hills when Jesus is arrested. They face all of these challenges. In two weeks, I'm not going to get there today, but in two weeks, I'm going to actually talk about suicide and what the Bible says about that and how we engage with that topic. Because it's another real thing that Christians deal with and wrestle with, the suicidal even feelings and suicide itself. And of course, David. (coughs) I don't know about you, but the, the Psalms are hard to read unless you're really struggling, and then they're really comforting. Because the Psalms are really discouraging and depressing at times, right? Psalm 25, 16 Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. That's not good feelings. Psalm 42, 5, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Psalm 88, 3 and 4, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. That is written by a person in the midst of dark depression. And as Christians, we embrace this. The truth of the fact that we are frail creatures of dust. Jesus came to save sick people, not well people. So count me among the sick, please. The broken, please. I'm one of the wretches too. I used to have a shirt that finally wore out that used to say, it said, um, I am the wretch the song's talking about. Like that's, we, we get to embrace that. If, if we're proud of anything, which we're not supposed to really be proud of anything, if we're proud of anything, we, pr- we find pride in our weakness because that's where he is strong. Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, <coughs> but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the truth that David comes back to over and over and over again. It's how David survives decades of depression and isolation and loneliness and persecution is to remind himself, but I'm not my source of strength. My heart fails. Fortunately, my heart has something more than me to depend on. He comes back to that time and time again. Hiding in caves. We'll talk more about specifically one of David's psalms in a couple of weeks. 
Listen to what the Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 7-8. We have these treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power of God belongs, the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. That's such a sweet verse. Everyone loves that verse. That's because God's power is like inside us, like we're just a vessel, we're just a jar, and God's power exists inside of us. We get to carry it around. But listen to what he keeps saying. That's such a pretty verse, isn't it? Listen to how he keeps going, though. We are afflicted in every way. We are, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. We have this walking dead complex that we have because we carry around the death of Jesus in us all the time and all that means. We are this close to the edge on a regular basis, maybe all the time. I mean, Paul faced that time after time. This is the man who asked God to deliver him from something three times and God just told him flat, no. Not doing it. You'll learn to live with my grace. It's enough. I mean, this is, that's who we're talking about here. This is the apostle Paul. Why? Again, he comes back to it. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We live with the constant death of our Savior, but we also live with the endless life of our Savior. Welcome to being the Christian. See, we want, in the Western world, we want this pretty clean line. We want a series of pretty clean delineations between the physical challenges and the spiritual challenges and the relational challenges and the mental challenges. <coughs> I, I have such a hard time going sometimes to, see, to continue education stuff in the counseling world because... Because you have this one half over here that they seem, they're, they're so, actually I'll start with this half. The Christian half, a lot of them, not, not as many anymore, but a lot of them do this, well the reason you have depression is because you're not praying enough. The reason you have a, a physical ailment is just because your faith isn't strong enough. Listen, if you would just this, if you would just have this little bit more extra, then you wouldn't be facing these physical or mental or relational or whatever challenges. See, you're just not Jesus-y enough and that's why you're having struggles. You're not Christian enough, as if that's how that's measured. I love that. You just need to be more Christian. Like, like my children need to be more my children. That's how that works, right? But the other half, there's this response, and now sometimes even in the Christian world, this other part that's going, no, no, it's all biological. Listen, it's, it's, ju it's just biology. It's just physiology. There's nothing else but that. Your addictions... Your depression, your mental illness, there's, there's nothing at all character-driven or spiritual or emotional or anything else. It's all purely just, just straight biology. There's nothing else there. I told you guys, listening to a podcast of a, <coughs> a neuropsychologist who's dead now, um, and, and he said, it just, it just killed me in this podcast. He's being asked, and they never ask hard questions of people like this. And they go, and he goes, um, well, now that we know that there's nothing but the brain, there is no mind, there is no soul, there is nothing like that. Now that we know this, that there's nothing but the brain, it really changes the way we engage with everything. And the interviewer goes, man, that's really fascinating. So is there anything left to study? You know, like, I mean, you're old, you're retired. Is there anything left for people to study? And I kid you not, the very next question. And the guy says, yeah, we don't know the first thing about consciousness yet. And I'm like, how did, so you know everything is about the brain, but the part that we're all saying is not about the brain, you know nothing about. Like to me, I'm going, how do you not see the obvious problem here, Mr. Scientist, right? 
You're, you're not asking yourself questions. You've now, you've now reached your religious perspective, and in, in blind faith, you're just holding on to it, even though you admitted, yeah, actually, we, the, the very basic stuff. We know nothing about the mind and the heart and the spirit and the soul. We don't know anything about those. They don't exist. That's how that works. I, don't, I, I, I get wrapped up in this because the truth is, I think we are one big ball of identity, we are relational and we are spiritual and we are physical and we are mental and we are biological. Pick something and see if you can divide it out. What is sleep? Is sleep biological or is it spiritual or is it emotional or is it mental or is it relational? What, what is sleep? Anybody ever gone a long time without sleep? Anybody have young children? <laughs> Does it affect your relationships to go without sleep? Well, it shouldn't because it's just biological. Does it affect your spiritual life? Does it affect your prayer life? Does it affect your emotional life? Um, yes. Food. Surely food's just biological, right? It's not about emotions. <laughs> right? We serve donuts here. We know better. Right? I mean, pick these things. How about sex? Is sex physical, spiritual, relational, mental? How about medication? How about taking medication? Is taking medication physical, spiritual, emotional, relational? Yes? Okay, let's go theology. How about sanctification? Is sanctification, is that a spiritual thing or is it a mental thing or is it an emotional thing or is it a relational thing? Maybe it's a biological thing. Yes, let's stop with this ridiculous desire to divide these things out. Let's cut that out. It's going to be complex. It's not going to be the case. Can you imagine trying to explain any of those? <coughs> we are, according to 1 Corinthians 15, as Christians, we, are, we have these dusty, perishable bodies, and we have these heavenly, spiritually bodies. This is a mystery. Why stop, stop trying to parse a, a piece, every bit of this mystery apart? We need to cut that out. We stigmatize some part by dividing them out. We, we are diagnosed. Okay, hey, so here's what we do. I'm, I'm going to make a list. I want you to note in your brain <coughs> if you're on this, in, on this list, okay? If you're on any of this list. Have you ever been diagnosed and or medicated or gotten counseling for anxiety, depression, ADD, a phobia, post-traumatic stress, OCD, stuff like that? Have you ever sought out counseling for relationship issues, family issues, teen issues, parenting issues, grief issues, marriage issues? Ever taking sleeping medication or stress medication or pain medication? whether the pain medication is over-the-counter or prescribed, <coughs> including CBD oils, <laughs> right? Including your essential oils, right? If you fill anywhere on any of those lists, stand up. Okay, yeah, now, now who's the freak, right? <laughs> the person who's not standing is going like, wow, I feel left out. Like, I need to get some counseling. Yes, right? Have, you probably do. Have a seat. Because you're in denial. Anyway, just playing. Um, <clears throat> can we embrace the fact that we're a bunch of frail, broken people? Can we accept that that's part of what it means to be human and to be Christian? I mean, that was all psychotropic type stuff that I just listed. I didn't even ask if any of you were addicted to or medicating with caffeine or alcohol or sugar did I say sugar? Like, did I, did I? I mean, think about how we medicate ourselves with these things because 
It, those, we are this mixed-in thing. Of course we have mental illnesses as Christians. Of course we do. Of course we need medication as Christians. Of course we do sometimes. Of course we need counseling and help. And of course we need these things. How, what, what, what possible thing would you use in Scripture to teach that somehow what we are primarily is less broken? It doesn't work. We are embracing the fact that we are broken. It's why we're here. It's, it's exactly the opposite of what the world thinks we think about ourselves. Sadly, what many Christians do think delusionally about themselves. It's an easy conversation to have a conversation with someone who thinks delusionally that God will keep them from struggling and suffering, in, even in regards to spiritual issues and mental issues and, and bad habits and, all that, and addictions and all that kind of stuff. Of course, it's all mixed in together. These exist in the fall we exist in the fall, the spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, relational, <coughs> and the Bible encourages us in seeking God's way in every one of these areas and unified in these areas. Of course it does. Pretty much every passage we will ever look at in the Bible are going to touch on all of these in some way. That's just how that works. I believe, I have to believe that because that's the case, that's why we get to minister in all the different ways we do. I mean, giving blankets to foster high school boys in the month of July. And let me just tell you, those blankets are spiritual and emotional and physical and relational. When you hand that kid that boy that blanket, a big, tough kid who won't look you in the eye because he's so, he's so tough, but he's got to pick a blanket, and it's the most biggest decision, you think it's the biggest decision he's ever made in his life as he picks that blanket. And then they wear those silly blankets every day in the month of July. Everywhere they go, they're carrying around those blankets. What is it? Is it spiritual? When we send to the, the, when we sent to the border, I mean, can you get any more biological needs than underwear and socks? But what we're doing is we're engaging with the physical and the mental and the emotional and, of course, the spiritual. When a kid gets a pair of socks when they need socks and they know that that came to them in Jesus' name... That is spiritual. They don't cancel each other out. We embrace all of that. We don't do just one. We embrace all of that. That's the plan. <coughs> when we come together in our fears and our anxieties and our depression and our OCD and our ADD in Jesus' name, we impact eternity together. The enemy shudders when we love each other, especially when we bear the burdens of those of us who carry the biggest burdens. I think there is great spiritual power when we embrace one another's burdens and we come alongside each other in one another's burdens, the enemy fears. It is a spiritual battle when we do that. It's part of why I love doing it. Part of why I love coming alongside people who are carrying huge burdens and helping them carry them. Because I think the enemy hates that. I think he fears that when we do that. And I think it shows that there's a gospel out there that is bigger than us, that is a miracle. It's almost as if we serve a God and we have a gospel that is about death to life. That we serve a God who brings back dead people. That is a powerful ministry. Let me read this from Galatians 6. I'll wrap up with this. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something... When he's nothing, he deceives himself. I don't want to deceive myself. I want us to come together and recognize I need you, and you need me, and we need one another. 
And fundamentally, all of that in the name of the Christ who came to pay our debt, that we can accept that payment <coughs> and live freely to the point that we can afford, that we can generously afford to forgive other people's debts because he's made us wealthy the minute he forgave ours. So now we get to be that guy who pays other people's, pays for other people's meals. We get to pay off the debts they owe us. We can afford to do it because of the level of wealth that we have. That's the gospel. Stand with me, if you will. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, <clears throat> the way your word speaks truthfully and honestly into the reality of what we experience is so cool. The way that, the way that your word does not shy away from hard conversations, that we don't have to be afraid of engaging with things that are hard. We don't like it. I don't like it. But we get to rejoice in the fact that you are a God who came, who sent his son to save those who are sick and dying, to find those who are lost and afraid. And sometimes, God, I am lost and afraid. And I'm sick and dying. So I'm so grateful that you sent your son to rescue us. Now, I pray that our eyes will be focused on your son, not on our fear, not on our pain, not on our depression, though those are real, but that our eyes will be focused on your son, the author and perfecter of our faith who also forgave us and therefore gives us the freedom to forgive each other. Thank you, Father, for this day and the power of your word. We ask it in your son's name. Amen.